Volume 3, The Conclusion of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume 3, Conclusion. Where there are twas seeking, there will be a finding. After John had taken Di back to London, he returned to Brighton, and from thence to Overday to arrange for the double funeral. He had not remembered to mention that he was coming, and in the dusk of a wet afternoon he walked up by the way of the wood, and let himself in at the little postern in the wall. He had not thought he should return to Overley again, yet here he was once more in the dim gallery, with its faint scent of potpourri, his hand as he passed stirring it from long habit. The pictures craned through the twilight to look at him. He stole quietly upstairs and along the garret gallery. The nursery door was open. A glow of light fell on Mitty's figure. What was she doing? John stopped short and looked at her, and with a sudden recollection as of some previous existence, understood. Mitty was packing. Two large white grocery boxes were already closed and corded in one corner. John saw Best Cubes printed on them, and it dawned upon his slow masculine consciousness that those boxes were part of Mitty's luggage. Mitty was standing in the middle of the room, holding at arm's length a little red flannel dressing-gown, which knocked twenty years off John's age as he looked. "'I should take it,' she said half aloud. "'It's worn as thin as thin behind. That and the open socks, as I've mended, and better be mended.' And she thrust them both hastily, as if for fear she should repent, into a tin box, out of which the battered head of John's old horse protruded. If there was one thing certain in this world— it was that the Noah's Ark could not go in unless the horse came out. Mitty tried many ways, and was contemplating with them with arms akimbo, when John came in. She showed no surprise at seeing him, and with astonishment John realised that it was only six days since he had left Overley. It was actually not yet a week since that far distant afternoon, separated from the present by such a chasm, when he had lain on his face in the heather, and the deep passions of youth had rent him and let him go. Here at Overley, time stopped. He came back twenty years older, and the almanac on his writing-table marked six days. John made the necessary arrangements for the funeral to take place at midnight, according to the Tempest custom, which he knew Colonel Tempest would have been the last to waive. He wrote to tell Di what he had settled, together with the hour and date. He dared not advise her not to be present. But he remembered the vast concourse of people who had assembled at his father's funeral to see the torchlight procession, and he hoped she would not come. But Mrs. Courtney wrote back that her granddaughter was fixed in her determination to be present, that she had reluctantly consented to it, and would accompany her herself. She added in a postscript that no doubt John would arrange for them to stay the night at Overley, and they should return to London the next day. The night of the funeral was exceeding dark and still, so still that many, watching from a distance on Moat Hill, heard the voice saying, I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And again, We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. The night was so calm that the torches burned upright and unwavering, 
casting a steadfast light on church and graveyard and tilted tombstones, on the crowded darkness outside, and on the worn faces of a man and woman who stood together between two open graves. John and I exchanged no word as they drove home. There were lights and a fire in the music-room, and she went in there and began absently to take off her hat and long crape veil. Mrs. Courtney had gone to bed. John followed her with a candle in his hand. He offered it to her, but she did not take it. "'It is good-bye as well as good-night,' he said, holding out his hand. "'I must leave here very early to-morrow.' Di took no notice of his outstretched hand. She was looking into the fire. "'You must rest,' he said gently, trying to recall her to herself. A swift tremor passed over her face. "'You are right,' she said in a low voice. "'I will rest, when I have had five minutes' talk with you.' John shut the door and came back to the fireside. He believed he knew what was coming, and his face hardened. It was bitter to him that Di thought it worth while to speak to him on the subject. She ought to have known him better. She faced him with difficulty, but without hesitation. They looked each other in the eyes. "'You are going to London early to see your lawyer,' she said, "'on the subject that you wrote to father about.' "'I am.' "'That is why I must speak to you to-night. I dare not wait.' Her eyes fell before the stern intentness of his. Her voice faltered a moment, and then went on. "'John, don't go. It's not necessary. Don't grieve me by leaving Overly, or, or changing your name.' A great bitterness welled up in John's heart against the woman he loved, the bitterness which sooner or later few men escape, of realising how feeble is a woman's perception of what is honourable or dishonourable in a man. "'Ah, Di,' he said, "'you are very generous, but do not let us speak of it again. Such a thing could not be.' He took her hand, but she withdrew it instantly. "'John,' she said with dignity, you misunderstand me. It would be a poor kind of generosity in me to offer what it is impossible for you to accept. You wound me by thinking I could do such a thing. I only meant to ask you to keep your present name and home for a little while, until—they both will become yours again by right—the day when—you marry me." A beautiful colour had mounted to Di's face. John's became white as death. "'Do you love me?' he said hoarsely, shaking from head to foot. "'Yes,' she replied, trembling as much as he. He held her in his arms. The steadfast heart that understood and loved him beat against his own. "'Die,' he stammered. "'Die!' And they wept and clung together like two children. End of the conclusion to Volume 3 Postscript Mitty's packing was never finished. Why, she did not understand. But John, who helped her to rearrange her things, understood, and that was enough for her. For many springs and spring-cleanings the horse-chestnut buds peered in at the nursery windows and found her still within. I think the wishes of Mitty's heart all came to pass and that she loved Miss Dinah. 
but nevertheless I believe that, to the end of her life, she never quite ceased to regret the little kitchen that John had spoken of, where she would have made rock buns for her lamb, and waited on him hand and foot. End of Postscript End of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley